listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the things we do so regularly as human beings is we confuse our circumstance with what's deep and real. We, can, we confuse our circumstantial or conventional reality with what in fact is what we might call an ultimate life or ultimate reality. We mix those up. In other words, we think that our life situation, the situations that we have in life, is all there is. That whatever tragedy or whatever success or whatever that might be kind of in between, whatever happens, that's what's real, that's what's facing us, that's what's real because we can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it, we can feel it, and so forth. But in fact, there's this ultimate life that is constantly unfolding underneath all of that. And that ultimate life is something that lives itself through us. And I know this sounds esoteric. This may sound like something. I can't get my mind around that. Well, that's because the words here are trying to speak to that which is precisely beyond the confines of your mind. And contemplatives, sages have been doing this for millennia. They've been doing this for years and years and years and years. And it doesn't make it, the fact that we've had all this stuff happen before us doesn't make it any easier to articulate. But I'm, I'm doing my damnedest up here. So stick with me. <laughs> what we're trying to do is recognize that there is, I've said this before several, so over the past few, it's kind of a theme that's going on. There is a peace underneath. There is a peace underneath every single thing that we experience. It's always there. And we can kind of start to plug into that when we do a few things. As paradoxical, paradoxical as this sounds, when we do nothing, when we sit still, what happens is that peace underneath becomes accessible. Sometimes you can actually feel it. It might feel like a little shimmer or a little, little uh, buzz. It might feel like um, just a totally open relaxation. It might feel like, um, I equate it sometimes to like having a yamalcha on the top of your head, something little thing on the top of your head. Sometimes you just feel this, like an energetic sense of, ah, oh, it's like everything's open. Everything is totally still. Like there are no needs, no need to move. The breath is happening but there's no need to push it or force it or watch it or anything. It's just there. It's just there. And we kind of relax into that space. 
that points us in the direction of what's always already there. Yet there are things that veil that experience from our sight. Talk about this a lot too. What is it that veils kind of that opening from our sight? Well, number one is our addiction to identity. We, we identify with things. We identify with uh, uh, this structure we call the self. We build this self that is separate from other selves in the world and we hang on. We cling. So whenever we cling to this idea of separation that my experience is totally in here and your experience is something that goes on out there, the minute we create that, that gap right there actually is a veil. It's a veil of this kind of infinitely open spaciousness that we can kind of relax our way into, that we can fall into, just like we fall in love. We fall asleep. You don't work yourself to sleep. I mean, you could try it. It doesn't work very well. Usually creates a lot of tension, and then you stay awake for more, and then you get frustrated, and then tension builds and so forth. You can also force yourself into love. And we all know, if any of us have ever done that, that uh, it, that doesn't end up very well either. And forcing ourselves into awakening doesn't work either. It's something you allow to happen. As uh, Richard Baker Roshi says, it's an accident. And our, medita our meditation practice makes us accident prone. Love that line. Yeah? And probably the number one thing, it's the number two thing, because stillness, having a sitting practice, I think, is probably number one. Number two, though, would be a reorientation from knowing to wonder. Knowing is about attachment. When you know something to be true, it's always about a certain clinging. It's always about a certain management of stuff. But when we wonder, the possibilities increase. The attachment opens. All things are available at that moment when we question. And it's something that people just have the hardest time doing. I find again and again and again, people don't want to sound stupid. They just don't want it because why? They've got an identity that they want to protect. And that is that they are, you know, they know things. Or that they're not stupid. That's a good identity to have. Okay. So being able to kind of allow for that to shake loose. Allow for us to watch that which we are attaching to. Watch our circumstances that we grip onto. And in the watching, that which is doing the watching is actually already the ultimate life that we wish to lead. So allow for this to kind of percolate. This next, next week, and even through this particular Sangha meeting that we're going to have now, this, uh, this sitting, just allow for questioning to happen. I wonder what happens if, what is, that is so 
healthy and so helpful in diminishing the thickness of these veils that are in front of us. It becomes pretty, it's opaque. You know, we can't even get, get an idea. It's like, what the hell is he talking about? You know? But then when we start to question, we literally start to open. And when we start to sit still, we no longer, you know, feel like we're compelled to move this way or that way. We start to slow down, really slow down. We start to recognize that peace underneath, underneath everything, that ultimate life that surrounds and infuses our circumstantial life. And then it all miraculously starts to make sense in a way that goes way past what our brains can kind of comprehend, what our minds can comprehend. It's a felt sense that becomes something that is actually beyond the felt sense. And we then just begin to relax and live from there. And that's kind of the practice. There's one more point though. And as we live from that place, it's imperative that we live from that place. We're not allowed in this work to just stay with the view that the mountaintop shows us. We don't stay there. We bring all that that view shows us back. So awakening then is two things. Okay? It's the simultaneous recognition that it's all one big, empty, blissful, peaceful, penetrating, perfect stillness. And it's that living from that place, from that perfect stillness, we feel compelled to share it in how we live. Understand that those two two spaces, it's one. It's the aha. It's all one thing. And it's bring it on home. Bring that all one thingness that you have sensed into the world, into your tragedy, into your stress, into your peace, into your love, into your kisses, into your observation of the Warriors that say beat the Dallas Mavericks. My wife is always quick to point that out to me as I get very excited watching the television, watching competitive sports, which she tells me they're rotting my brain. Um, and she may be right, but I'll take it. <laughs> but that we then live an integrated life where we take stillness, we take spirit, and we bring it into the circumstantial world and we dance. That's it. Another way we can recognize this ultimate life, and then by recognizing it, we can then hopefully bring it back into this conventional circumstance. The way we can recognize it is by understanding a couple of very, very simple truths that 
can guide us. We can practice with them. Uh, whether you're sitting in meditation or you're uh, dropping the kids off at school or you're fixing your lawnmower, doesn't really matter. We recognize, number one, that all things, all things are temporary. Nothing lasts forever. All things are temporary. S applies to life and limb. It applies to other people we may love. Several of us actually, as I spoke about a couple weeks back, have lost a very near and dear friend, one of the founding members of this Sangha. You know, it's like it's a reminder. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Passing. Everything is passing. Everything is fleeting. Including our thoughts and feelings. So whatever level of, uh, shall we say, obsession you might be running through, it will pass eventually. Unless you, there's a very unhealthy mind or very unhealthy brain patterning or so forth. That, that, of course, can be an exception. But every one of our thoughts arises and ceases. Every one of them. Every one of our feelings does exactly the same thing. It arises, ow, or oh, and ceases. It's temporary. Everything is temporary. including our own lives. It might be a very interesting experiment, especially if you're, if you're having a hard time uh, motivating to sit. One of the things that always uh, stiffens my spine a little bit is uh, when I really, really let in the imminence of my own death. I'm going to die someday. I don't know when, but I know I'm going to die. So how do I want to live? Comes the big, big, big question. How do I want to live? And so really kind of allowing an intimacy to develop with that temporariness of my own life. With the lives of those close to me. With the lives of those around me, with the, you get the idea, the lives of all beings, with the life of this planet, all of that stuff, start to develop a relationship with it. Usually, if I am going through one of these uh, 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 contemplative situations where I'm really kind of thinking about my own mortality and so forth, uh, I deal with people a little bit more differently. It can be very helpful. Because they too, whether they are choosing to recognize it or not, are dealing with exactly the same thing we are. We're all sharing this life and death experience. It makes it harder to get frustrated at somebody who's acting in a way that's unconscious or rather, it's easier to kind of let it go when you recognize that there is a finite amount of time that we have 
You're going to let that bug you? Does it really, really matter what they just did? Whatever, you know, slight they just threw your way. Does it really matter that much in the grand scheme? We start thinking, in other words, of the grand scheme. It becomes very, very apparent. We start looking at things from, instead of being in it, we start developing an altitude, spiritual altitude, where we can kind of look down and see more of what is with a deeper clarity. So that's number one. All things are temporary. The second thing is that everything depends on everything else. Everything depends on everything else. That which keeps us locked at a very low altitude is the belief that we aren't dependent on all other things. And there was a little thought experiment one of my teachers gave me when I, of course, brought this up. I go, well, I don't see how it is that um, I'm dependent on every one of the other monks that are here at this particular temple. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I depend on the kitchen crew for, you know, making sure food's ready and so, but I don't see how I, she says, don't you actually depend on them for your life? I went, no, I don't. She said, well, what if one of them decided they didn't like you very much and hit you in the head with a rock? Don't you depend on their acceptance of your presence in this space and time? And it was then like I got hit in the head with a rock. It was, oh, I didn't really think about that. And then she told me the story of, uh, I think I've shared this with you maybe before, of the uh, Holocaust survivor who was talking about how she watched uh, a man have his, he had his glasses yanked off by a brown shirt and then smashed on the ground and how he couldn't see and uh, the, the story went that um, this person, having seen that, that incident, realized we depend on everyone in order to be able to see. You depend on the kindness of others for your very sight. Someone could at any point in time come and grab your glasses, throw them down there and step on them. Someone at any point in time could come up to you and kill you. Someone at any point in time, you understand? that we actually depend on each other to coexist. We can't exist in isolation, just like an orange cannot exist without sunshine, without water. It can't. But when we start looking at interdependence, how everything kind of fits together in this vast dance, to use that metaphor again. The orange starts to taste differently because our taste buds begin to search for not just orange as nourishment, they begin to taste the sunshine. They begin to taste the rain. Try this next time you have a bite of food everything that went into miraculously bringing that bite of food to you. That water, that water that you drink, it miraculously comes from deep in the earth. And then we get to have it. The yogurt that I eat in the morning came from a cow. 
thank you, cow. I depend on you, you know? And I depend on the farmer to help raise the cow. And I depend on that farmer's skill. And I depend on fresh air. I depend on everyone for clean air and water. We depend on each other. We depend on everything. Everything depends on us. It's a big dance. Just like the universe. The universe itself. If, if you, the, these cosmologists talk about this in terms that just uh, I find to be so poetic. Actually looking at the cosmos, what do we see? We see stars rotating, dancing around galaxies, dancing around black holes. Just like any one of us might find. If you've, have you ever been to or seen in a film a ball where the women are festooned in these gorgeous gowns and so forth, spinning, and the guys are in typical form quite drab in their black and white tuxedos, perhaps with white tie and gloves. But they are like the black holes and the galaxies spin around them. It's similar to what our universe is like. Lastly, so we've gone from everything is temporary, everything is interdependent. Lastly, that everything is spirit. Nothing is not spirit in action. Nothing, 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 not every single bit of this is spirit. I was in a bookstore today and every once in a while when you go into a bookstore, especially when you stand in kind of like the spiritual section, you can hear, overhear great conversations. If you listen hard enough, eavesdropping has become quite a pastime of mine when I go into bookstores. Uh, the other thing I should point out, I have no self-control in bookstores. It's, it's the most, it's hilarious. I'll go in, well, I'm just going to go look. And then it's like, oh, so much to read. So little time, you know. Uh, anyway, I was in this particular, I was in this section and I was listening to, um, we were right by a window and an incredibly fancy car pulled up. And a guy who, I don't know, he must have been probably 60 years old or so. He was a very, very uh, uh, handsome, handsome man who looked like he took uh, meticulous care of himself. And his wife clearly took meticulous care of herself. And um, it reminded me uh, of a lot of my ex the experiences that I've had in Los Angeles. Just this absolute, not to, I'm not dissing Los Angeles, it was just this right out of, uh, uh, you know, right out of any cliche you could imagine for L.A. Just was like right down, looking right outside the window. And I listened to these uh, ladies who were gathering up all these, these books. And they were saying, gosh, I bet they're not spiritual. <laughs> Well, maybe not, but maybe. Is 
someone in a gorgeous car who looks like they take meticulous care of themselves not spiritual? Are they less spiritual than someone who drives a 1971 Volvo? Are they less spiritual? What is less spiritual? Somebody in a tailored suit or someone in a meditation robe. Whatever your answer is to that really points towards your own attachment, your own identification, because they're equal. Spirit shines its light equally, just like the sun shines its light equally. It doesn't, the sun does not discriminate. The sun does not say, well, we're going to skip Colorado today. It's always shining equally. So the real responsibility for each of us as practitioners is to recognize that spirit is in everything, that everything is spirit. The beautiful car, the beautiful outfit, the beautiful new boobs, all of it is spirit. Our relationship to it can either be an awakened one or one of delusion. And the one of delusion always judges. The one of delusion always points. The one of delusion either looks down its nose at or worships. The awakened response would be to bow equally to that as to anything else. And that's a real sticking point for lots of practitioners because we identify what we, we think. That's spiritual, that's not. Maybe a better way, a more helpful way of saying that with, with you know, that, that type of, which leans in that direction would be, I have judgment surrounding that and I have judgment surrounding that. Even better, wow, judgments are arising in me or judgments are arising. If we can get to that space where we can recognize, whoa, judgments are coming up, evaluations, compartmentalizations, these are arising. That which can recognize that stuff coming up is free of the crushing tendency of clinging. In other words, when we recognize that spirit shines equally in all things, when we can really recognize that, we can see spirit in all things, no matter how ugly they might be to us, no matter how unjust they might be to us, when we can see that it's all spirit in action, is the moment that we can actually begin to live a life that is free of fear, that is free of clinging, free of judgment. Doesn't mean we don't discriminate, 
but our ego is no longer involved in judgment. That's the practice. That's the practice. So any questions that you'd like to share? Did anything come up? Yeah. How can an inanimate object be spirit? How can an inanimate object be spirit? Well, you and I are both actually made up of inanimate objects, right? Atoms, subatomic spin, particles. They're all technically, by our definition, usually the one that we use, the conventional definition, inanimate, right? So, basically, consciousness itself then, does it come from cells? Or does it come from that which makes up the cells? The atoms, the molecules. And if they're carbon-based, you know, I mean, we're looking at a rock, for instance, let's say, or this flower. Does this flower have consciousness? Is this flower an expression of spirit? We, what we tend to do is anthropomorphize spirit. We tend to look at it as a being, right? Well, our definition of being, once it shifts to include all things, it allows for spirit to show up everywhere. It's an expression of spirit. Everything is an expression of spirit. And if you don't like using the word spirit, sometimes it's helpful to, to look at it this way. Everything is an expression of infinity. Right? Or let me ask you, I'll just turn around. What is not part of the universe? What is not part of infinity? I guess what is terminology for me in that I differentiate what I think of spirit. When you think of spirit, I think of something that has consciousness. Let go of that. All right? If you let go of that, then consciousness begins to take on a whole different meaning. It's not just sentient beings, conscious beings, it's all things. Spirit doesn't stop with the deer and the muskrat, right? Spirit, or infinity, doesn't stop with the animals. It's all-encompassing. It is infinity. And everything is an expression of infinity. There is infinity within and infinity without. And when we start resting in that realization, spirit opens us by opening itself through us. I interrupted you only because when we start looking at spirit stops here but goes here, what we've just done is created the very separation that keeps us in mistaken or deluded uh, uh, pathologies. We start looking at it as all one thing. Every bit of this is universe. 
Nothing is not. It's a double negative, sorry, but nothing. Nobody doesn't like Sara Lee. Uh, no. Uh, no. Uh, nothing is absent of spirit. Nothing is absent of infinity. Nothing is outside of the universe. Well, see, I can see everything being part of the universe. Mm -hmm. but Where's it catching? Pardon? Where's this catching for you then? Is differentiating sentient beings mm -hmm. from non-sentient. Sentient beings are different from non-sentient, from that which is non-sentient, because they actually can reflect. Right. Okay? But that doesn't mean they have more spirit to them. I'll sign up for remedial. You'll sign up for the remedial class? All right. I'll give it to you on the way home. Oh, sure. Watch, watch out for that tendency. <laughs> yeah, that needs a ride. <laughs> Good question. Good question. Anyone else? Anyone else want to play? My yeah. head's going to explode right now. Your head's going to explode right now? Yeah. That's good. That's kind of the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, well, come up with some questions. Or, but my mind immediately goes blank, and I don't have any questions. And, and I get... I sense, a sense of futility comes into my mind as I was listening to, to the last question. Not because of that particular question, but mm -hmm. all these kinds of questions about, you know, reality, what, what's real, what's not real, what's spiritual, what's not spiritual, what's in the universe, what's outside the universe, dualism versus non-dualism. None of the, following those threads, maybe I'm just not intellectually curious. No, wait, what happens when you follow those threads, you get what? I'm watching your body. You're explaining it very beautifully with your body, which is what? It's like, well, what's the point of that? Right, right. And what happens when you follow that thread all the way to its source or to its end point? You get to the same place. curves back on itself. Okay? So why don't I just sit here and be quiet? That's okay. Right. Very good. That's where I end up. Yeah, you can do that. You can do that as long as you promise not to stay there. In other words, that quietude will always show us something. Every single one of us in this room, when that quietude begins to deepen and begins to literally, we, we, it's almost like a rooting of quietude begins to occur. And we nourish that rooting with more and more stillness like water. And it begins to blossom okay, and open us, whatever that is. Okay? But what, we, what, what happens is that that flower needs to be shared. It needs to be given away. And this is the biggest, I think, one of the biggest problems, if you will. I mean, it's not a massive problem, but it's a, one, of the biggest, one of the biggest problems with spirituality is people say, um, especially these traditions, even Zen. Zen r runs this risk to a certain degree, which is once you hit that space, just rest there. Everything else will take care of itself. Well, to a degree, that's true. Once you hit that space, and quietude brings this about naturally, once you hit that space, okay. 
but you're only halfway there. Once you hit the opening, then what you do is you take what that opening showed you. You take that view and you carry it very loosely back so that it can be distributed. And then you go up and down again. And then you go up and down again. So if you're in a space, Michael, where it's like, ah, too much mind, too much mind, that's, that's really good. Okay? Don't let, it, don't let it bug you. Don't let it bug you. Be quiet. Being quiet is fine, too. Don't hide there, though. Don't stiff the curiosity, because the curiosity is actually what uncovers the opening. Curiosity, wonder, stillness. Wonder doesn't move. Wonder does not move. Wonder's, huh, it's opening. Wonder is an opening, right? Curiosity, huh, opening. And that opening is available to all that moves. Okay? So we just position ourselves there and see what comes up. But the main thing is not to be afraid of letting stuff come up. Don't keep stuff down. Let it happen. Let it happen. Let it happen. And see where it takes you. Your head doesn't look like it's going to explode now. Thanks for coming tonight. See ya.